What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we tap experts on topics that matter most to the modern working woman, whether you are running the show or working your side hustle. We're bringing in leading female entrepreneurs to share their stories with you. Are you ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Hi, guys, and welcome to this week's episode of Work Party, the podcast. This week, we are talking creativity and why you should take yours seriously. Okay, so what does that mean? Here's an example. When I first started Create and Cultivate, it was a total side project. I was running my marketing and events agency at the time and decided to put together what I called back then a freelancer's getaway. We all know how isolating being a freelancer, remote worker, a work from homer can be. And I wanted to connect with my fellow entrepreneurs in an offline way. The first Crate and Cultivate was hosted at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs. There were maybe 50 of us, and just to be real, I pretty much knew everyone who came. We hosted workshops, panels and dinners, and had one sponsor that barely covered the cost of the event. It was so much fun, but it absolutely wasn't a business, and I was fine with that. I had my business. This was just my passion project. But as time passed and the momentum grew around Crate and Cultivate, I knew I had to make a shift, mentally. I had to start thinking about it as a business for it to become a business. It was no longer this little get together I was throwing. It had interest, excitement, and more importantly, brands coming to us to ask how they could participate. I had to start taking it seriously, and I did. I capitally contributed to the company, brought on a business partner, and started hiring. I tell you this because whether you're making fiber art, writing poetry, or sewing clothing in your garage, you have to take it seriously if you ever want it to be a business. I hear far too many creatives downplay their talent and side hustle. Remember, people will take you seriously when you take yourself seriously. And here's the thing, creativity is wide ranging. It's not just arts and creating, it's fashion and beauty. It's everything. It's the job you never thought you could have. A study showed that when pulling hundreds of creatives, 75% of them thought they were not living up to their creative potential. That means creatives are leaving a lot on the table. Creativity and passion toward your work are key to a fulfilling life, but there's also a key ingredient that's missing, and that is money. How does this creative endeavor, project, or business make money? 
And here's the good news. We are in a creative renaissance. People literally now have the job title creator. Some great examples of people like this are Cleo Wade and Rupi Carr, who took poetry to the next level, creating a community around them and building a business alongside it. I always think about the women behind the My Favorite Murder podcast, which I love, who now have millions of listeners. They literally sell out stadiums. And women like our guest today, Rachel Zoe, who went from stylist to mogul, using her incredible eye to launch media companies, commerce, and more. We are living in an age where you truly can create the career of your dreams. You can turn your creativity into cold hard cash and be your own boss. But that's not to say it isn't challenging. Competition is fierce. Starting a business is difficult and can honestly be expensive. Even harder is breaking through the noise to get your name out there. Later in this episode, we're going to talk to Rachel Zoe about how she took her styling business to a namesake fashion empire. But first, we're going to tap our creativity expert, Jihan Zensarelli of Geronimo Balloons, artist, maker, and innovator, on how she took her balloon business from pretty to profitable. So welcome, Jihan. So I got the chance to Hi. In- Hi. So I got the chance <laughs> to interview you for the book work party, which was so awesome. And I love your story so much. And I've really been able to watch your career kind of unfold. Um, and you know, you really are the true like story of taking your creativity seriously, which is what we're going to talk about today and really seeing success from that. So one, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about when you started taking your creativity seriously. I'm Jahan. I'm Geronimo. Um, I honestly, it's been me forever. Like it's like, I've always been this, I've always taken my 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 creativity seriously. Um, whether or not the world took it seriously is right. maybe the difference. But I think really early on, um, for birthdays, Christmases, I remember even like Easter Bunny, I would just like hope and pray that I'd get like a stack of um, construction paper or pencils or um, uh, that sounds like really dismal. But um, I remember one year my aunt gave me a catering napkins. Like she went to probably some restaurant supply company and she bought catering napkins, like nice linen napkins in like 12 different colors with a quantity of 12 each. And I had, oh, must have been for my 12th birthday actually, which was a Martha Stewart themed birthday party. Amazing. I had a very like um, soft toned sweaters and pearls. But I always, I was always looking to kind of have a hustle with something that I created or made or was like interested. I want to also, you know, talk about one of the biggest struggles I hear from creatives is I have no idea how much to charge uh, for their services, yeah, whether yeah. that's like painting a mural or, you know, creating something physical. I think it's it can be a scary place. And I don't think there's many resources online that really like tell you like, this is how much you should charge for a painting. Um, but w- how did you approach this early on? And how did you know where to set your prices and when to raise them? Well, you're right. Pricing is really arbitrary, and it's it's sort of a game of how much can you charge before people think you're crazy, <laughs> and how much um, do you need to charge so that you can actually turn a profit or you can grow something. And specifically with when I started my business, um, I'll note that like I really wasn't even selling balloons when I first began. I was giving them away as gifts. So they started. It started off just as you know the momentum of me just being just a, a human who would show up to parties. And we show up to events, and this is kind of my performance. But 
um, as soon as I realized that I wanted to make money from this, I, I thought I would, it would just be a supplement to the rest of my work or my life. So um, I remember uh, Jordan Froney, who um, is, is the owner of Oh Happy Day mm-hmm. and the founder of The Color Factory, which is opening in, in New York in a couple weeks. Oh, um, nice. I love her work. Yeah. She's the best. She was like, okay, read back to me essentially what you have in mind. She's like, no, 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 no. When I told her, I was like, I don't know, like maybe $30, $40 a balloon. She was like, that is ridiculous. You need to triple, quadruple the price. You need to make it fine art. You need to make it something that people will, you know, like they'll spend some money on because they they feel, it, you know, that it now feels like a luxury item. And it was the smartest advice. And I needed someone to give it to me. I needed someone to like tell me that it was okay. Um, I don't think I would have given myself that permission, but uh, I did. I started my price off at $75 per balloon and that was crazy. That was a nut. And as soon as I launched my company, there were, there were three price levels. One was 75, one was a hundred and 150, I think was like the jump. No one wanted to buy the $75 balloon. Everyone wanted to buy the top tier. They wanted the best the best and the best and that became a different number every every week because I had I had to outdo myself and in LA especially where there is a market for luxury items and sort of a an, an insecurity if you if you don't have this item or you, you know to stay, stay atop of the trend um, ahead of the trend people were just scrambling to purchase them from me and, and wanting even more special and like, you know, even more particular elements added to the balloon that um, it then became, you know, I, I think I've sold a $500 single balloon in my life. I mean, Amazing. Just kind of it's like the Supreme model. Like, it's like you could put the logo Supreme on a trash bag and like people are going to pay like $4,000 for it. <laughs> but it's, it's, you. I did once buy a $4,000 Supreme bag. So yeah, you're right. Look, you're that this. sucker. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, no, but I well, mean, it's, it's, it's marketing at the end of the day. It's hype. It's creating a marketplace, right? What, what's lucky is that it became something that people saw all over the internet all at once. This is before Instagram. This is before Pinterest, really. And all of a sudden, pe- people were getting their information from Daily Candy or, mm-hmm. like, different roundups on the internet. And they were actually turning to blogs more. And so, oh, Joy, Joy Cho, she posted about me on her blog, which was a connection that I had made through Jordan Fernie again. So she was like, hey, my friend's doing this thing in, in Los Angeles. You should meet her. It's with balloons. Joy was like, cool, don't know who this person is. We connected on Facebook and then on email. And she was like, yeah, my birthday's coming up. Why don't you just do like some birthday balloons and I'll post it, kind of just like something festive. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of that week, I mean, it literally had turned into like a little $30,000 nest egg for me overnight from people seeing that, uh, just consumers who follow her, but then also like companies who are, are looking to these design bloggers for inspiration and they're contacting me and they're asking to come over and photograph me in a studio or have an interview, talk to me on the phone, um, buy prototypes, work with me on a project. So, I mean, it, it, it kind of just took off immediately overnight and it then it allowed the world outside that was like, 
I don't believe that this person has the the right to sell a balloon for that much. All of a sudden, they're seeing it integrated in all of this other, you know, ad space or or commercial, um, not ad space, but like journalistic space. Like people are writing about it and pictures mm. are being kind of distributed. Then they're like, well, I guess you better get, on, I guess you better get on board. Like I guess this is a thing now. It's amazing. And I, I love it because like one of the things we have is behind every great woman are great women. And I love your story about Joy and Jordan and like everyone just kind of giving you that quick intro or whatever it is and how much it like impacted your business. It's it's just so amazing. So the New York Times, you know, quoted that your work is some of the most recognizable in the world, uh, which is amazing. And it's such a true feat and accomplishment. So congratulations on that. But with that, yeah, comes people mimicking taking inspiration from your work sometimes flat out copying it um we've seen what this looks like you know around the world but and honestly the same is true for create and cultivate the same is true for anyone seeing success you know truly but how do you cope with seeing that happen to your work oh this is such a complicated question to answer on on a low level i mean i've seen this always for my work so um I think I, 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 like I created the concept of the balloon with a tassel hanging off of it. And now that con- concept is owned by the world or not to take it that far. It, it's owned by, you know, uh, 300 M- um, Etsy sellers. Um, Probably these, more. I mean, <laughs> all of these distributors out of China who email me and they say, uh, hello, we would like to sell you this product. And it's, it is my design. Um, <laughs> Uh, to Martha Stewart has her own collection, Target, um, Michael's Craft Store. Uh, Does Martha see. Stewart know um, about your birthday party theme? I mean, what's happening? <laughs> Does she know? Oh, that? yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, Martha, Martha and I have, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're kind of, I don't know, are we friends of me? I wouldn't even, I, she'd probably pretend she didn't even know me. But, um, <laughs> no, we're, we're uh, I've kind of, um, she was a the needful evolution, but she was a really important part. Um, yeah, but she's not above stealing ideas, right? I mean, that's not really her, but whatever. Her name's <laughs> on it. Um, you know, even down to Oriental Trading Company has right. my version, um, which creates kind of like a funny, like there is an industry based on one single idea that I have. If I if I walk away from anything in my career, it is the most empowering, like most magical story that really is just for me is that I created something that was that uh, that accounted for jobs for for revenue for um, I mean let, let alone like happiness at parties I created something that became a, a, like a secondary market that didn't exist before me that like I couldn't I mean it's like Romy Michelle's high school reunion like we invented the post-it like <laughs> I invented this thing that's so not important but it is important to people and their businesses and it's, it's how so many people have made money and that was my idea that I believed in that I shared and it's you know it makes it's what makes my work more relevant now because I've you know been around for eight years doing this thing it's it you know it's it's uh it's i mean i own it in in a way like it'll always be me um it'll always be you know uh, directly owned by me from the the energy source i would say that's the most like uh hippie way of describing (laughs) the energy source so what i'm trying to say is yes 
It's honor. It's such an honor to be knocked off in such a viral, big way. It is annoying, and it's annoying when other people have ownership, and they feel that that was their concept. And I want to say that, like, I don't. That's creative dysmorphia. I don't know what that is, but it 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 makes me feel like, oh, you don't actually get the reward of being able to see something from start to finish, an idea that came from searching for a way to connect with people. I mean, this, it initially started with me just wanting to make something for my best friend for her birthday. Um, so because I get to own it from such an, uh, like a personal level, everything that I do, I get, I get the reward of that joy. And it's not just a paycheck for me. That was so beautifully worded. And I, I totally... <laughs> Yes, like it's so empowering, like you said, to see this like viral success of like something that you again created for someone's birthday party. And on the flip side, it's like heartbreaking sometimes because you're like, oh, I've worked so hard at this to see other things cropping up. But and I honestly, I think that's the most human answer because I think it's so accurate to even the way I feel about stuff as well. Um, well, once something becomes also a trend and not very special, it's kind of like, oh gosh, that's. That means that I have to work so much harder to like come up with something new, and I'm not. Yep. I'm not. I don't work that way. I I work based on my inspiration, not because like I need to. I need to like put something out into the world, um, and so you know, like it it does actually like you know it does inspire me to kind of keep things going along, but it's you know it's it's ultimately at my own <laughs> my own pace. Um, yeah, yeah, and and on that note, like obviously your work is inspiring hundreds of thousands of people. Where do you look for inspiration when you're trying to create something new? I go back to basics. I go back to, um, in LA, I, I go during happy hour to this little cafe called Figaro. It's on Vermont, uh, in Los Feliz. And I sit and they have a happy hour menu and I get a drink and some fries and I watch people walk by Right after that, I go to the little um, bookstore, Skylight Books, the art bookstore, and I the first the first book that inspires me, I spend time with. Sometimes I leave and I purchase, but I, I let it just kind of like something speak to me there and inspire some feelings for the night. And I walk around, um, and I see, and this is like all done solo. Like this is a kind of a moment I have with myself, and this is like a recurring date I have, like kind of as much as I can you know, time affords. Um, in New York, the same applies. I wear um, a pair of Jinko jeans, the, the, <laughs> the old school style jeans. Yes. And I say that because they, there's a tool There's a tool in them, which is they have super long pockets, super deep pockets, and so I can put my phone and, like, a little charger and, like, some money, you know, subway card, my, my like, one key to my apartment. Um and then I just set out. I don't have any plans. I just am walking. And, you know, 12 miles of walking around later, I've seen so much. I've smelled so much. I've wanted to cry so much. I've wanted to laugh so much. I just put myself in the place where people are. And that's that's what inspires me. And if I run into, um, uh, you know, something on the street, which you always do when you're out and about, like that is something that informs everything that I'm, you know, excited about and creating and, it's hard to hard to give yourself that time most of the time. It's like, when such a have? it's such a lost art. I feel to be able to do that and enjoy it and take the time and not honestly be on your phone looking at your feed of 
Instagram stories and things like that. And I think that's so lovely um, and important to disconnect. And, and, you know, you notably like you took you take time away from social media. I mean, I follow you um, and, and when you're back on, I notice it because you obviously have these amazing new projects that you're talking about. But, you know, you notably take time. Is that a, a conscious decision? And do you find that that helps you kind of reconnect with yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, I stopped using Instagram. Well, there's been a lot of evolution for me. So I, when Instagram came around and I was at uh, tea with, um, oh, let's see. Oh, my gosh. Design Love Fest uh, with Brie. Um, she was like, you have to be on Instagram. Like, and this is another story of like someone in the community, a woman who's like helping me along, who's not like, hey, if I tell her about this, then that means that it'll diminish for me. It's just like people taking care of each other. So we're having a tea at um, Earth Cafe in downtown LA. And she's like, you have to be on Instagram. Like, you got to sign up after we meet. Like, you got to just go say signed up. And I used Instagram as people did back then, which was like through 100 filters and, you know, and like horrible captions. <laughs> um, and then after a while, I was like, this is stupid. Um, I'm just going to put, put pictures up of just my art. And uh, I felt like that was a little too promotional. So then I started writing kind of short narratives about my feelings in life. And that was a way that I could deal with being promotional and and then also have some balance and levity for like personal things, which I felt were, you know, mostly of them, most of them were really um, you know, self-deprecating and hopefully created some balance to me being like, look at me. Now, you know, I'm not that great. Like, we can see both things. So after a while, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not really interested in engaging with the world on Instagram because it's not really feeding me creatively. And what I'm giving is not really what I want to be giving. giving. And, and so I just stopped. And it didn't affect my business. I mean, I wasn't climbing in numbers, but people still knew how to find me. And my work has, you know, has kind of, you know, really rocketed in the last year in a new direction. And that was mostly without social media. I only got back on to social media really in January to support my work with the New York City Ballet. So all I can say through this experiment is, I think that social media is obviously a wonderful, beautiful tool, but as a person who needs to be inspired and there has to be a level of connection to what I put out, I don't ever feel like I'm being held hostage if I do it on my own time. And I feel like if what you're trying to put in, out into the world is just something that um, is meaningful or, or genuine, you can't do that if you feel like you're being you know, held at, at gunpoint by your phone to produce something and mm -hmm. we've all seen the content that we know that people will feel forced to put up and I just I can't I can't be part of that so then I you know I play my own I'm, I'm going on the beat of my own social media drum <laughs> but Instagram's a wonderful tool and it can be really great for me personally if I have that hat on and when I don't um I just walk away and I'm kind of quiet about it and then when I return you know <laughs> yeah uh, I love that and I think I think you're right I think sometimes people creators feel like I gotta post I gotta post I gotta get this up I gotta be making something and doing something and I think it's a great lesson that you kind of don't either like it's fine the world will go on and your work will go on and I think that's a really great lesson there's also something to be like I went to the movies by myself last night and this girl who was um taking my money for my single popcorn she was like oh do you are you 
Geronimo? And I said, yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> yes, I am. And she's like, oh, I follow you. You, uh, like, it's so interesting to see you in person. Um, I don't know what, other than trying to um, make myself seem important in that conversation, what was I trying to get at? That was um, a great story. Oh, people do follow you and they invest in you. Yeah. And so that's how you, that's how you create that investment. And that, um, every so often that becomes an in real life kind of connection. And that, that is meaningful to me. And that's, that's the sort of world I want to create um, through Instagram. And I want to create art with Instagram. So my Instagram for the last, you know, six, seven, eight months has been really rooted in a different, um, a different look, a different visual narrative. And that's been really, really meaningful. Yeah, I love the work you've been putting out and putting up as of recent. It's it's so fun and 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 it works really well on Instagram as well as in real life. So just to wrap things up, what advice would you give to artists trying to figure out how to turn their art or craft or whatever it is into more of a business? Don't listen to anyone's advice. Nothing I can tell you will be any like any value if you're not kind of on the pulse of your own of like what your needs are so I can I can tell you everything about how I started but um and um, any other founder could as well but you really have to have a pulse on what it is that you create you have to be humble enough to change it to what the market or the world needs and I think sometimes when it's your creative project or craft or something that you are you believe so much in they're, um, you're, you're so rigid, like you can't change or adjust it at all. And there, there are some adjustments that have to be made through time. So you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to separate yourself. And I do think that there's, there are projects that are for you and for your own joy and fulfillment. And those are not always meant to become your, your livelihood mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. There, there needs to be some some healthy and spaced and uh, and safe distance from the things that are is like your go-to for the happiness in your life. My balloon concept was not supposed to be a business. I was supposed to do a million other things creatively, and this was this was not it. And the fact that I put other things aside and I kind of involved myself with this um, and thought through for a good period of time, and now is you know is my life. Um, is a testament to kind of the creative fate being at, at, at play. I love that. And creative fate, it's so true. I mean, I think about Crate and Cultivate. I did it for three years, made zero dollars, in fact, lost money on it. I just liked doing it and liked getting people together and like putting together these like little funny things and little photo booths and cute moments and never in a million years thought it could be a business. And again, three years of it, if I was trying to make it a business, it probably wasn't going to be working and I would have given up. But it wasn't until I actually like was like this could be a business and started treating it that way did it become one um but I I love that it's always such a joy talking to you and we will have more notes um on Jihan and where you can find her and follow her and all of her amazing work in the show notes so thank you so much Jihan So now we're going to check in with Teal to see what is going on at CNC. Hey, JJ, we take creativity very, very seriously over here at CNC. Yes, we do. We've got quite a few blog posts to help our listeners and readers do the same. And one of my favorites is titled, When You Should or Shouldn't Work for Free. 
Love that. Um, the pros of an unpaid gig should always outweigh the cons. Exactly. And as a creative, when you're debating taking on a gig for little to no pay, there are a few things you should really consider. Of course, if you're working for free but doing some good in the world, that's always a win-win situation. You can never go wrong with doing some good in the world. True. Head to createandcultivate.com for more creative inspiration. And don't forget to join our Facebook group full of creatives to collaborate with. Amazing. Thanks, Teal. Season one of Work Party, the podcast, is brought to you by LinkedIn. Before we introduce you to our special guests, allow us to introduce you to LinkedIn, the world's largest professional network and our partner for season one of Work Party, the podcast. LinkedIn is a community of over 500 million professionals that are ready to help, support, inspire, and push you to achieve your goals. Whatever your definition of success is, there are people on LinkedIn that can help you get there. So now on to our main event. A woman who needs no introduction, CEO, mom, and mogul, Rachel Zoe. Welcome. So I want to kick this off by saying not only is Rachel a powerhouse, but she is also one of the most generous women out there. She has lent her time and expertise to create and cultivate countless times, including now, and is always such a pleasure to work with. Okay, let's get right into it, Rachel. So today we are talking about taking your creativity seriously. One of the most common questions we get asked at Create and Cultivate is, when do I quit my full-time job to focus on my side hustle? So Rachel, for you, you were senior fashion editor at YM Magazine, but decided to go freelance as a stylist. What was that aha moment that triggered you to make that decision? It was a couple things. The truth is, is one of them was that I was starting to feel like creatively stifled because I think, you know, when you're working at a teen magazine, there are limitations as to the sort of, you know, the the subjects that you're working with in terms of like an age range or what they did for a living or, you know, I, I just sort of wanted to kind of build upon my styling, to, to be honest, like just in terms of I wanted to broaden the subjects, so to speak, or the talent. Um, and I really um, loved glamour from the beginning. And the problem was in those days, not to sound like I'm a hundred years old, but in those <laughs> days, you know, there was very few jobs that you could move into. Like it was like, okay, am I going to go to Elle magazine? Am I going to go to Bazaar? Am I going to go to Mademoiselle? Am I going to go to Cosmo? You know? So, and, and what happened was my peers were in those jobs and not going anywhere. So it was like, if I wanted to move to another magazine, there honestly wasn't a space for me. If that makes any kind of sense. I honestly went freelance at 25 years old. One of the things we talk about a lot is momentum, like go where the momentum is. And it sounds like for you, that styling became the momentum that took over. And then you obviously went there. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it was just everything. It was it was all, um, you know, I just, I lived for it. I, I didn't sleep. I didn't, you know, I would lift out of a suitcase. I was, when I wasn't on the job, I was doing expenses for the job. Like it was one of those things where my life became all consumed with my job. So um, I was going to say pre obviously moguldom, um, you were well known as a stylist, but I think styling is one of those jobs that people don't really understand how it works. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how styling works as a business and, and how you sort of can work your way up? <laughs> well, it's interesting because in, again, like in that time period, 
people really didn't know what it was. Yeah. <laughs> if I said what I did, people were like, oh, you cut hair? Or, <laughs> oh, you do makeup? Or, you know, it was like you're a hairstylist um, was really what people immediately thought of. Um, and, you know, there was, it was part of the reason I did my TV show was to sort of, you know, educate people in what it really meant to be a stylist and to be in fashion and that it wasn't just someone who loves clothes, you know, it was just so beyond that. And, you know, when I was styling, when I started, it was really about creating images for people. It was really about, um, especially in the music industry at the time, it was a lot of, I would get calls from, you know, the, the highest up at the music label and be like, I have a new artist, you know, she's coming out and she's really talented, but she needs a new image or she, you know, it was a lot of image creating and cultivating and collaborating with these talents to say like, who are you? Who are you as an artist? You know? And for me, that's always the way that I approached styling. I never approached it as I'm dressing someone in the prettiest dress I can find. It was really like, who are you? What's your message? What do you want to be to people? What are you feeling like kind of what, what are you feeling in people's lives, you know, and, and who do you want to be? And let's go from there, you know, let's, let's always take it, you know, and to this day, it's funny as I'm about to open my first store, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, it's funny, my mission, my mantra has not changed. I just always want my client, male or female, to just always be the best version of themselves, whatever that is, whether it means the best pair of jeans, they're, you know, the chicest pair of flats, whatever it is, build their confidence on the inside and somehow project that through their image on the outside. Absolutely. And from the consumer perspective, like I remember the moment when the like, quote unquote, Rachel Zoe look blew up and every girl all of a sudden was like, I want to dress like her and dress like the girl she's dressing. How did you build that signature look and sort of gain that notoriety? It was never um, a thought. It was a gut. It was a gut feeling. It was what works best on this person. You know, my personal style has evolved over the years, but I would say it's more or less the same. Mm-hmm. You know, there are moments where I get dressed and come to work and I'll walk in and my team goes, oh my God, you're so Rachel Zoe 2002 right now. You know, <laughs> it's like, where like my uniform from 15 years ago is my uniform today. And you know, I, I think that I am who I am. And I think sometimes as a stylist, your personal style inevitably can come out, you know, we used to say through osmosis, you know, because you're around your clients, some of them so much. So I think that what happens in styling is that it really does ultimately project subconsciously or consciously on some of your clients, not all, but some, because some of them hate it, you know? So it's like, you have to really think about it. Like, you know, Cameron Diaz at the time would never be wearing like a long 70s caftan and massive sunglasses. Like she was in a, you know, a, 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 you know, a metallic mini dress with, you know, hot pink stilettos and, you know, and super cool hair. And, and you know, I, I think you really have to take who the person is. So obviously once that sort of bubbled up and obviously you got the household name and the TV show and all these things, when did you know you wanted to start building your own brand of clothing? Um, much later, much later. Um, it was in 2010 
um, launched officially in March of 2000, uh, February of 2011. Um, and the reason that it took me so long is because I knew that it was really in a sense a full-time job. Um, and I'm not someone who can give 20% to something. I give a hundred or 200%. And I think that has been, you know, the challenge over the last couple of years is balancing those different businesses, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think launching my own clothing collection was something that really was born out of, you know, two decades of being a stylist and collaborating with so many designers and really having so many women in my life say, why aren't you designing your own clothes? Why aren't you making clothes for us? Why aren't you da da da, you know? And I think that it, it finally came that the time felt right to do it. Um, and it really is a constant labor of love, to be honest. So one of the things you've really mastered as an entrepreneur is the art of diversification. I mean, you have the Rachel Zoe collection, you have Box of Style, the Zoe Report, that you were the executive producer of the Rachel Zoe Project, you have books, you have so much going on. But how do you decide what projects you want to do next and where you want to grow the business? To be honest, that is um, very much instinctual. I have always used my gut as a guiding light and force in pretty much every facet of my life, but I would say especially in business um, because it's very easy to fall into too many directions. Um, and I think, you know, something I always say is I really never had a blueprint, some architectural plan of my career. I really didn't. Um, my goal was really to be the best stylist I could be. So following up on that, how do you feel about having your name on everything? So obviously there's that common thread of the, you know, Rachel Zoe, the Zoe Report. So I imagine there are pros and cons. Well, yes. Um, I would say I never wanted my name on things. Like it was more like, you know, I, I always tell the story. Like I remember when I was doing my books and I was like, does my name have to be in the title? And the publishers were like, yes. Right. Like it's almost like deal breaker, right? It's like yes or it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And it was and with the TV show, it was sort of like, uh, you know, we don't need we don't need my name in, in on the TV show. And they're like, uh, yes, you do. <laughs> you know, because ultimately I guess name is sort of at times the point of differentiation. It does not always apply. So, you know, if you look at a great example and it is my friend Whitney of Bumble, like her name's not in Bumble, it's called Bumble, right? And I think it's it's brilliant and I think the brand is is just growing way beyond any name, right? And I think it's amazing. I think having my name on everything is one of those things where, you know, the pro would be I think that people really know what they're getting when my name is on something, you know? it's 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 sort of like a comfort, like they know what it means. You know, most people who are buying something because it has my name in it, right? they know what they're buying into, right? Like it's, it's, it's a- Stamp it's of a approval, yeah. Stamp of approval, it's a lifestyle. It's, it means I love it, it means I care about it. Um, and I would say that the other pro is that I won't put my name on something that I don't love and that I don't care about. And I think that that's something that I don't take lightly at all. You know, if my if my name is on it, then it has to be, you know, it has to be something I very much care about and very much approve of. 
You recently sold the Zoe Report to Bustle Media Group. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and why that was the right decision? Sure. Um, I really, you know, I feel so good about that decision, to be honest. Um, you know, it really was the best case scenario because I think, you know, I have three primary businesses, you know, the Zoe Report, the Box of Style, my subscription box, and... Um, and the Rachel Zoe collection. And I think with that, you know, there comes a point where things get big and they get too big to be able to focus mm -hmm. all of your attention on all three things. And, you know, I really feel that the Zoe report means a lot to a lot of people. And I think that Brian is such a force in the media industry, Brian Goldberg. Um, and I think that he really has proven over and over his talent and his real expertise in the media business and his ability to scale the business and his ability to recognize really good, you know, varying platforms that women are attracted to. Um, and I think that his love of the Zoe Report um, was such was so great for us to see. And Brian's been someone that we've known through the business for many years. And we have a lot of mutual friends and a lot of mutual peers. And it was such an incredible marriage. And, you know, I'm still a very big shareholder um, in the Zoe Report. I'm still an editor at large and I'm still very much involved. Um, I am rooting so hard for it. I know that they are going to continue to just grow the success of the Zoe Report exponentially. And we have such a deep mutual love for each other. Um, you know, the Bustle team is now based out of the West Coast Bustle team is in our office in LA. And, you know, we really are just, my sister is now, you know, issues head of sales for the Zoe Report over working out of the New York Bustle office now. So it's amazing. It's a really incredible partnership. And, um, you know, for me, just really the best, the best case scenario all around. And there's a real love fest between bustle and <laughs> us and you know i don't think i could ask for a better scenario to be honest and for me it's really given me full time to really focus on the rachel zoe collection the brand and the box of style and it's it's been pretty extraordinary thus far well i love that and i think that's such a true entrepreneurial move where you're saying look i have these a million things going on i have to give them all my attention and love and like seeing that future vision for something and saying you know i'm going to bring in the experts here i'm going to hand it off to this better home yep. or situation yep. it comes with being able to kind of foresee and know now that you obviously are running a million companies um so one piece of advice I always remember, and this kind of plays into what you just said, is once you start making the money you want, it's to bring in the experts, bring in the people who know more than you. So who are some of the key people you've hired over the years that have sort of game changed your business? You know, I wish there was more that I could tell you. Um, no, I mean, the truth is, is we've had some key players um, that have really changed the game for us. Deirdre Kennedy um we brought in uh, about a year and a half ago she's been really incredible for us um she came she was at pop sugar for eight years um but she's really just been this really incredibly positive force in our business um you know and as you can imagine as roger and i co-ceo the company it's like it's nice to have someone 
kind of unbiased coming into the business, right? Mm -hmm. So she's been great in PR marketing um, for the business, but also now um, really heading up our box of style business and has been really just unbelievable in that part of our business. Um, also a woman that moved out here from New York who really turned our e-commerce around the shop Rachel Zoe platform. Her name is Elkin Nance and she came from Oscar de la Renta in New York. She had built out their e-commerce for them and she really has just done the most extraordinary job um, in our um, in in our business, in our e-commerce business. So I think, you know, the truth is, you know, we have a new um, CTO or head of tech, um, Amit. He's been unbelievable. And I think when you bring in real talent, you really see how it pays for itself, how it changes the business immediately. You know, and I think that that is definitely a really good question because I think that it's the biggest challenge that entrepreneurs face is staff, is is team um, and talent, really. Because, you know, sometimes you pay for what you, you know, you pay, you know, you get what you pay for and sometimes not. Sometimes you really just get stars that aren't necessarily the high salary players, but they are just truly stars. And then they grow within the company and become really high up in the ladder and it's and it's been amazing um to to watch those stars come to fruition i love that and i i, I know deirdre and i love her um and I, I totally agree i think hiring is the hardest part of the job um yeah. which is yeah. ironic um but yeah it's really about and i love how you were saying she's such a positive force because i mean all the skills in the world if you have a bad attitude it's just not gonna work it doesn't work. And I'm telling you, and there are low points where you really need those cheerleaders, you know, and, and, and Deirdre really has just been a cheerleader, you know, and I think, I think you really find your winners when times are not so great, you know, and times are more challenging. And then you really, you know, it's almost like those moments in your personal life where like, when, when you're going through something really tough and you realize who your real friends are and the real people in your life. I always say, I'm like, it's either when things are going really good or really bad, everyone's true colors sort of come out. 100%, yeah. <laughs> so I wanna talk a little bit about Roger. So you guys obviously, like you said, are co-CEOs and my parents actually have been business partners and worked together for my entire life, so over 40 plus years. Um, so, and I always am amazed by it. Um, and I've obviously seen you and Roger in action and it's such an yeah. awesome partnership to witness. Um, so tell me a little bit about your advice for couples that are potentially looking to start a business together or even just finding a partner that sort of is your yin to your yang. You know, it's, it's we get asked this so much because I think people are constantly like shocked. <laughs> I think like part, like it's funny. I've had like really successful business women that I've like are really close friends and they're just, they're very happily married, but they're literally like, I would die before my husband was my like business partner. Like, and it's the funniest thing because I think Roger and I, I don't believe would have ever planned it that way. It just happened that way. So, you know, Roger was an investment banker for eight years. He was then built um, media business, the internet week and the Webby awards. Um, he still sits on the board of recognition media um, which, you know, still runs the Webby Awards and all these different incredible things in the business. Um, and he came from a very different background than I did. 
and I was styling like a lunatic and my business started to really just get way too big for me. You know, it was just, it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't do all that needed to be done. And what ultimately happened is he ended up sort of just out of like love for me, just started constantly sort of like helping because I was drowning, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and then literally when we launched the Zoe report, that was really the brainchild of Roger and me and this one writer, Jessica Mento editor that we, that we launched the Zoe report, I think 2009, because Roger really said, you have so many women that want to speak to you and they want to connect to you and they want to talk to you and they want to ask you all these questions. We have to figure out a better way. There is a better way to communicate with these women, you know, and then came social media and all of that. So it was almost really accidental and that it was perfect storm of sort of launching a media leg of my business because that was his passion. And then as we grew, they all became intertwined and, you know, it really just grew. It just kept growing. And that's really how it happened. We never sort of said, hey, babe, let's co-CEO because we don't spend enough time together. (laughs) And then to be honest, it really works for us. You know, it really does. I wouldn't say it works for everybody. I think you have to be a very certain type of couple for it to work. You know, we really are attached in every way. We've been together for now almost 28 years. Um, And I think that we just finish each other's sentences. We breathe with each other. We parent together. We, We look at it as a real plus because we're a very close family and we don't have to separate very much, you know. And I have so many friends that live separate lives from their, you know, spouses because mm-hmm. they do different things. And listen, for some of them, they love that, you know, they love the distance. They think it's healthy and it may be, I think to each his own, um, or her own. And you really, you navigate your own life. This really does work for us. I couldn't imagine it any other way. Um, that's not to say as we grow that we won't bring in really big key players, you know, that sit with us or board or, you know, people over us, under us, next to us, you know, I think we welcome that, you know, I think it's more just knowing that we're living the same sort of mind in a way, you know, rather than having to spend all that time trying to download each other or isolating one another because we're living such different business lives, you know? Um, and it really works. It really does work. Um, I think the con of it is it's very hard to not talk about work mm. at all hours of the night. You know, I literally was on the phone with him. He's in LA right now and I'm on the East coast and I'm, you know, it was two in the morning, my time and 11, his time. And I'm asking him like a million work things. And it's just, <laughs> oh my God. That's the one con for sure. So we're going to do a little bit of rapid fire questions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Quick to hire or slow to hire? Slow to hire. Heels or flats? Oh, heels. <laughs> get it done or take your time? Ugh, get it done. Little black dress or power suit? Power suit. In office or work from home? In office, 
but I do think work from home for me is very necessary so that I can get actual work done once in a while. I love that. And our last question, what do you want your legacy to be? My legacy, I want to be that I affected women in a really positive way and helped them feel better about themselves. Thank you so much, Rachel. That was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com. So you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.